Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! If you believe our independent reporting is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20 a month today by visiting democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open and democratic societies conduct themselves. Tension is escalating between Canada and India after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau accused agents of the Indian government of assassinating a prominent Canadian Sikh leader outside a temple in British Columbia in June. We'll get the latest. Then to the case of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's calls grow for the Biden administration to halt its prosecution of the imprisoned journalist. We'll speak to Gustavo Petro, the president of Colombia, who called on the U.S. to free Assange. And Biden could launch uh, the message of democracy, lifting up the process. He could pardon him, what have you. The path to tell the world that a journalist doing their job as a journalist should not be kept prisoner, even if it has a negative impact on the interests of U.S. power. We'll also hear from the Brazilian President Lula. And we'll speak to an Australian senator who's just flown into Washington, D.C., as part of a delegation to lobby the U.S. to abandon its plan to extradite Julian Assange from Britain. Then to Indigenous leader Winona LaDuke, a judge in Minnesota, has thrown out criminal charges against her and two other water defenders who were arrested for protesting at the construction site of Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline. It has been heartbreaking for us to undergo this trauma of all of these years of facing this corporation. And to have the judge say that to criminalize us further would be a crime. That was caused us all to kind of cry. (laughs) You know, because we're not uh, criminals. We're women who want clean water. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Authorities in Nagorno-Karabakh say they've accepted a Russian-proposed ceasefire one day after Azerbaijan launched a military operation in the contested territory. Peace talks between Azerbaijan and Armenia are scheduled to start Thursday. Yesterday's attack reportedly killed close to 100 people and injured hundreds more. Tensions have been growing in Nagorno-Karabakh in recent months as Azerbaijani forces sealed off its only road linking it to Armenia, leading to major food, fuel and medical shortages, as well as accusations of genocide. Nagorno-Karabakh is overwhelmingly populated by ethnic Armenians, but is recognized as Azerbaijani territory as part of a Russia-brokered ceasefire following the 2020 war. Protesters gathered in Armenia's capital, Yerevan, on Tuesday. I hope that finally they can find any solution to this problem. 
solution that can satisfy both sides and we can live peacefully. That's my opinion. I know it's difficult. It cannot be a decision which will satisfy both sides. But we should come to that. Otherwise, it will continue and uh, hundreds, thousands innocent people will die. During the protests, people, police used stun grenades to disperse crowds trying to enter a government building. Israeli forces killed 19-year-old Palestinian Durgan al-Akhras during a raid near Jericho in the occupied West Bank earlier today. His grieving father decried his killing. He is an unarmed citizen, a child. He has nothing to do with all this. Durgan is an unarmed person. He is a civilian. Whoever walks the street should be shot just because he is one of our people. One day earlier, on Tuesday, Israeli soldiers killed another four Palestinians, including three in the occupied West Bank in a raid on the Janin refugee camp, with 20 others injured. Separately in the Gaza Strip, 25-year-old Yusuf Salam Radwan was shot dead by Israeli soldiers. On Sunday, Israel said it's keeping the Beit Hanun crossing closed as it violently cracks down on Palestinian protests. Beit Hanun is the only operational crossing for Gazans to enter Israel, including some 18,000 Palestinians. Palestinians who work in Israel. This comes as President Biden's meeting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly here in New York. The Biden administration's criticized the gutting of the judiciary by Netanyahu's far-right coalition government and its plans to expand illegal settlements, though it has not pulled back its $3.8 billion in annual military funding to Israel. The U.S. is also pushing a deal to fully normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Arabia. The New York Times reports the Biden administration's in talks with Saudi Arabia over a mutual defense treaty that would resemble military pacts the U.S. has with Japan and South Korea. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is reportedly also seeking U.S. help to develop a civilian nuclear program. While campaigning for president, Biden vowed to make MBS a pariah over the assassination of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi and other human rights issues. In related news, Houthi negotiators and Saudi officials wrapped up five days of talks in Riyadh on a possible path to ending the war in Yemen. The Saudi-led U.S.-backed conflict has killed hundreds of thousands of people since 2015, with 80 percent of Yemen's population relying on humanitarian aid. Here in New York, world leaders continue to address the U.N. General Assembly. The addresses began yesterday. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned Russia's invasion poses a threat to all nations. And it is a clear Russia's attempt to weaponize the food shortage on the global market in exchange for recognition for some, if not all, of the captured territories. Russia is launching the food prices as weapons. The impact spans from the Atlantic coast of Africa to the Southeast Asia. And this is the threat scale. President Biden expressed ongoing support for Ukraine and condemned Russia's naked aggression. In his speech, Biden also called for global climate action, global AI, artificial intelligence regulations, managing competition with China, and urged the U.N. to back a security support mission to Haiti, as he called it, where gang violence has been surging.
One day after a high-profile Iran-U.S. prisoner swap, the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, told the U.N. General Assembly the U.S., quote, project to Americanize the world has failed, as he hailed a new world order. He also called on the U.S. to revive the Iran nuclear deal President Trump pulled the U.S. out of. America should demonstrate its goodwill and genuine willingness to fulfill its commitments and conclude the path. Outside the U.N. headquarters, protesters gathered to condemn Iran's crackdown on dissent and protest just after the first anniversary of the killing of Masa Amini. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel called for major reforms to international economic institutions and national debts that have overwhelmingly harmed countries in the global south. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva also addressed the U.N. We will continue to criticize any attempt to divide the world into zones of influence and to reissue the Cold War. The U.N. Security Council is progressively losing its credibility. This fragility stems in particular from the actions of its permanent members who wage unauthorized wars in pursuit of territorial expansion or government change. Lula's comments echoed calls for a change to the international order at this weekend's G777 summit as low- and middle-income countries met in Havana, Cuba. Among those addressing the G77 was Honduran President Xiomara Castro. We are not pieces in a board that promotes dependency. Our nations must not keep on suffering the massive privatization of their territories. In Washington, D.C., House Republicans remain mired in turmoil as infighting and threats by the far right push the government closer to an October 1st shutdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy delayed a key procedural vote Tuesday on a 30-day stopgap spending bill after opposition from members of the Freedom Caucus. Hours later, that hardline Freedom Caucus also blocked debate on a Pentagon spending bill and another blow to McCarthy. Meanwhile, House Democrats and some less extreme Republicans could work together to garner enough support for a spending bill that would bypass McCarthy and the far right's demand for massive spending cuts. In Pennsylvania, Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro announced Tuesday, Pennsylvania will now automatically register eligible voters when they obtain or renew driver's licenses or ID cards. We'll save taxpayers time and money, reduce the number of costly paper registrations, and streamline voter registration for Pennsylvanians. Look, this is common sense. You already provide proof of identity, residency, age, and citizenship at the DMV. All the information you need to register to vote. Pennsylvania joins 23 mostly Democratic states in Washington, D.C., in having some form of automatic voter registration. Meanwhile, Democrat Lindsey Powell easily won a special election Tuesday in Pittsburgh, restoring the Democrats' one-seat majority in the Pennsylvania House. She's the first black woman to represent the predominantly white 21st district in Allegheny County. West Point's being sued over the Military Academy's race-based admissions policies. The lawsuit is spearheaded by the same anti-affirmative action group that sued Harvard and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The conservative Students for Fair Admissions won that landmark case before the U.S. Supreme Court in June, gutting race-conscious admissions policies at colleges and universities nationwide. But the ruling excluded military academies. 
And at least 20 indigenous leaders and climate activists were arrested Tuesday as actions demanding an end to fossil fuels continue during New York's Climate Week. Dozens of protesters swarmed the Bank of America Tower in Manhattan yesterday, blocking entrances as they chanted, we need clean air, not another billionaire. The bank is one of the largest funders of oil, gas and coal across the globe, as well as the leading financial backer of the contested Mountain Valley Pipeline. This is environmental activist John Beard of the Port Authority Community Action Network in Texas. We refuse to be sacrificed any further on the altar of big oil, big gas and big finance and BOA. We refuse to allow them to put profits over people and determine the lives and future of people in the Gulf South without them having any benefit from it and destroying the very planet upon which we all depend. That's environmental activist John Beard of the Port Arthur Community Action Network in Texas. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Tension is escalating between Canada and India after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau publicly accused agents of the Indian government of assassinating a prominent Canadian Sikh leader outside a temple in the city of Surrey in British Columbia in June. Hardeep Singh Nijar, who was a Canadian citizen, was shot dead by two masked gunmen who escaped in a waiting car. In address to the Canadian Parliament Monday, Trudeau accused India of orchestrating the assassination. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open and democratic societies conduct themselves. Hardeep Singh Nijar was a prominent leader in the Khalistan movement, a Sikh separatist movement which advocates for the formation of an independent Sikh homeland in the northwest Indian state of Punjab. India's government, which is led by the hardline Hindu nationalist Narendra Modi, had designated Najjar as a terrorist, claiming he was the leader of a militant group. While the Indian government's denied involvement in his murder, India's long been accused of targeting Sikh leaders at home and abroad. Hardeep Singh Najjar's son, Balraj Najjar, spoke on Tuesday. It was just a matter of time for when the truth would come out. So when we heard that news today, it was a sense of relief that, you know, it's finally coming to the public eyes that, you know, the Indian government is involved. The assassination was also condemned by Mukhbir Singh of the World Sikh Organization of Canada. You know, the younger generation that grew up in Canada, they grew up hearing stories about uh, the persecution, about the fear of speaking out a little too much and you might get on a list or um, uh, be targeted. Um, and so to, to see that happening right now in 2023 in Canada, um, you know, it, it certainly is shocking. And I hope um, the larger community uh, sees that and understands how truly shocking this is um, to see a Canadian attacked on Canadian soil by a foreign country. Uh, I, I think we can't understate how shocking uh, that news is. On Monday, Canada expelled India's top intelligence official in Canada. In response, India expelled a senior Canadian diplomat. 
We're joined now by Arjun Singh Sethi. He is a human rights lawyer and adjunct professor at Georgetown Law. He is a member of the Sikh community. We welcome you to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us um, under very terrible circumstances. Can you explain what happened um, in June, the assassination of Arjun Singh Sethi, and then how this all became public with the prime minister of Canada uh, denouncing India and apparently having these meetings um, with um, with Narendra Andrew Modi and President Biden at the G20 summit uh, in India. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, in June, Hardeep Singh Nijjar um, was leaving a Gurdwara, a Sikh house of worship, um, when he was violently gunned down under very mysterious, suspicious circumstances. Um, some in the Canadian Sikh community had long suspected um, that the Indian government was responsible. Um, fast forward several months, um, really to this week, and we hear from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the floor of the Canadian Parliament alleging um, that the Indian government orchestrated the assassination of a Canadian Sikh citizen uh, in cold blood uh, on account of protected political speech. And so Sikhs across Canada, the United States, and the world who are engaged in protected speech are concerned. And so are others. Um, we've seen this, this administration, the Modi regime, target Muslims, Dalits, Sikhs, Christians. And so this is a warning to anyone engaged in activism, anyone engaged in speech, that you could be next. And uh, the the Modi government has claimed now for years that Najjar was a terrorist. Can you explain the, the the basis of these allegations by the Modi government and what his activism was about? Sure. So Mr. Nijjar uh, came to Canada in the 90s. Um, he later became a Canadian citizen. Um, and as you know, that is a vetted process. And so clearly the Canadian government determined he wasn't a threat. And then in 2020, when the Indian government labeled him a terrorist, they did so under the UEPA, the Unlawful Activities um, Prevention Act, which human rights bodies have routinely called draconian, regressive, um, um, and, and other things, because it is, it allows the Indian government to label someone a terrorist without due process and without trial. And so we've seen the Indian government use that law to imprison Stan Swami, a Jesuit priest, Umar Khalid, a longtime Muslim activist, uh, Kurum Pervez, a Kashmiri journalist. And it's this same law that the Indian government used to target uh, Mr. Nijjar. Um, again, it's draconian. And, and part of the outcome of this investigation and process um, is that this law should be denounced um, and really abandoned by the Indian government, because, again, human rights bodies um, have called for that uh, for a long time. And could you talk about some of the persecution that has been occurring under the Modi government against uh, minorities within India, especially of the Sikhs? Sure. I mean, let's go back. Um, you know, as the chief minister of Gujarat in 2002, uh, Modi uh, authorized and enabled the Gujarat pogrom in which mo thousands of Muslims died. 
Um, it was on account of that that he was banned from entering the United States uh, for more than 10 years. And so he was treated as a pariah because of his role in the 2002 Gujarat program. Um, as prime minister, we've seen countless human rights violations. We saw the Indian government roll back the autonomy of Kashmir and commit human rights atrocities there. Um, we've seen India lead the world in Internet blackouts. Uh, we've seen the Modi administration push forward the Citizenship Amendment Act, the National Registry of Citizens, um, which are mechanisms really to just strip Muslims and others of citizenship. Um, hate violence in India today, specifically targeting Muslims and Dalits, is so commonplace that sometimes it's organized online and the videos uploaded for the world to see. Just recently, um, and in a terrible mistake, uh, President Biden celebrated Modi um, with a state dinner, um, and the United States Congress welcomed him with a joint address. Meanwhile, hundreds of churches uh, were burning in Manipur, um, and we didn't hear anything um, from Prime Minister uh, Modi. Arjun Singh Sethi, if you can talk about threats to uh, the Sikh community worldwide, it's sort of on a model of Russians who have been poisoned in different countries outside of Russia um, or, or Operation Condor decades ago outside of Chile, but organized by the Chilean government. Uh, can you talk about what Sikhs face? And is this assassination unusual? So, so let me sort of go back for a second and provide a deeper context. Um, and that context uh, really goes back to the 1980s. Um, in the wake of the assassination of Indira Gandhi, um, thousands of Sikhs were murdered in pogroms um, in Delhi and across India. Um, those Sikhs and those families are still awaiting justice decades later. In the years that followed, thousands of Sikhs uh, were murdered across Punjab um, and enforceably disappeared um, by the Indian government. Um, there's a wonderful human rights organization um, that documents this work um, called ENSOF um, in the United States, and I encourage everyone um, to check it out. And so Sikhs who have engaged in activism in India have long been targeted. Um, and we've also seen that Sikhs in the diaspora who engage in activism face a variety of consequences. Um, in some cases, Sikhs are prohibited from entering India. Uh, in some cases, the Indian government refuses to grant them visas. Um, in some cases, their social media feeds are blocked um, on X and other platforms. And as you point out, uh, we've long suspected um, that the Indian government has been behind uh, targeted assassinations um, in other countries as well. What makes this story particularly unique um, is that it's the Canadian government. Um, and it shows just how emboldened the Modi administration is. And this is what happens when the world decides to embrace an authoritarian leader like Narendra Modi. Narendra Modi should be uttered in the same breath as Putin, as Mohammed bin Salman. But when you give him a pass... Um, when you empower and embolden him, um, he brings terror to a neighborhood near you. Um, and that's what we're seeing 
uh, in Canada today. On Tuesday, World Sikh Organization of Canada President Mukbir Singh and the National Council of Canadian Muslims CEO Stephen Brown held a news conference at the House of Commons in Ottawa, Canada. This is Brown speaking about the threats the RSS Hindu nationalist movement poses to both the Muslim and Sikh communities. Members of the Muslim community and the Sikh community and many other communities have been complaining for years that they have been targeted by harassment and threats by individuals and associations affiliated with the RSS. And for years, we've been talking to this about, the, about this topic to the Canadian government and nothing has been done, which is why we are asking right now for the Canadian government to ban the RSS from Canada and expulse its agents from the country. And so talk about what you see happening now in Canada with this all becoming so public. Of course, so was the assassination uh, in June. Uh, but with the throwing out of the top Indian intelligence official and then India retaliating, throwing out a Canadian official, where you see this heading right now? Uh, also extremely inconvenient for President Biden, who is trying to uh, improve relations with Narendra Modi at this point as he sets up new alliances. Um, so I live in the United States. Um, six represent, I believe, almost two percent of the Canadian population. Um, the Canadian government over the years um, has welcomed uh, six who have been persecuted in India. Um, and so I would absolutely defer um, to them. Having said that, um, you are seeing six protest, speak out, organize, um, because, again, a Sikh activist um, who ran a plumbing business um, who was a pillar um, of Sikh society um, in Vancouver, uh, was murdered in cold blood. Um, and so it is but to be expected that they are fearful. Um, and they want answers. Um, the Indian government, um, I believe last night, summarily dismissed the claims. Um, and Prime Minister Trudeau doubled down um, and, and asked, uh, again, for the Modi administra administration to cooperate um, and the Biden administration has said so as well. Um, and so next steps um, include bringing uh, the individuals who executed Mr. Niger to account, um, a comprehensive investigation that documents who approved this targeted assassination, and a deeper conversation really about the fact that India is not the world's largest democracy. Uh, India is the world's largest authoritarian regime. And in, in terms of the the position of, of uh, the Canadian Prime Minister, uh, Trudeau has not exactly been a profile in courage in terms of differing with the United States when it comes to policy around the world. Do you expect that this uh, uh, this strong stand of uh, of uh, Trudeau is going to have an impact on the United States as well? I hope so. Um, you know, as I already mentioned, uh, you know, the Biden administration has somehow taken the approach um, that it is sufficient to have private conversations with the Modi regime um, and that somehow that will nudge um, the Modi regime to be more respectful of human rights. But in fact, it's the opposite. Um, when we roll the red carpet out for Prime Minister Modi, at the same time that he is perpetrating human rights atrocities, um, it emboldens him further. Um, and so I do hope the Biden administration um, pays close attention. I do hope the Biden administration realizes that the time for private engagement is over. Um, the world needs to come together 
and ask difficult questions of the Modi regime,、uh, questions that really should have been posed a long time ago. Again, you know, Narendra Modi showed the world who he was a long time ago,、um, and it's time that we listen. Arjun Singh Sethi, we thank you so much for being with us, human rights lawyer, adjunct professor at Georgetown Law School, member of the Sikh community, speaking to us from Nashville, Tennessee. Next up, we look at the growing calls for the Biden administration to drop charges against the imprisoned publisher Julian Assange. We'll hear from the Brazilian President Lula, and play a clip of our exclusive interview with the Colombian President Gustavo Petro. And we'll talk to an Australian senator who's just flown into Washington D.C. as part of a delegation to lobby the U.S. to abandon its plan to extradite Julian Assange from Britain. Stay with us. <laughs> Sick devotional musician Bayavtar Singh. This is Democracy Now. Democracy Now. dot org. The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The United Nations General Assembly opened Tuesday here in New York. The Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was the first world leader to speak. He called for urgent action to address the climate crisis and to combat growing inequality. He also voiced support for Julian Assange, the imprisoned founder of WikiLeaks. Preserving press freedom is essential. A journalist like Julian Assange cannot be punished for informing society in a transparent and legitimate way. President Lula's comments come as pressures intensifying on the Biden administration to drop charges against Assange. A delegation of six Australian lawmakers has just arrived in Washington D.C. to urge the U.S. to drop its case against Assange, who is an Australian citizen. Assange faces espionage and hacking charges that could see him sentenced to up to 175 years in prison for publishing classified U.S. military and diplomatic cables, including evidence of war crimes. Assange has been held in London's infamous Belmarsh Prison since 2019, awaiting possible extradition to the U.S. Before that, he spent seven years living in the cramped Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he had political asylum. In a moment, we'll be joined by an Australian senator who's just flown into Washington. But first, I want to turn to Colombian President Gustavo Petro. I spoke to him on Tuesday at Colombia's permanent mission here in New York, just after he addressed the UN General Assembly. Uh, President Lula also said at the UN General Assembly about Julian Assange: "Preserving press freedom is essential. A journalist like Julian Assange cannot be punished for informing society in a transparent and legitimate way." 
President Petrov, do you think that Julian Assange, that the United States should drop charges against Julian Assange so he can be free? Uh, Juliana, yo le digo Julian. I, I call him Julian Assange. He's a journalist, period. And what he did was the work of a journalist, period. And he's been in prison for a long time because of his work as a journalist. It's the greatest mockery of freedom of press. And it's been brought to bear by the country that built the concept. It was in the American Revolution, what they call the founding fathers here. They're the ones who said that there must be a press independent of power of the powers that be. At that time, that was understood as the political power. Today, I would also talk about the economic powers because the press has been succumbed, has succumbed to economic power interests. But if we take this foundational concept of the United States, what they're doing with Assange is contradicting and denying their own foundational principle. The very government of the United States is doing this. And so it's a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction in its, of itself as a society. Assange should be free, and we have called for that. I have called for that. Lula has uh, made it into a banner. Ecuador, when with a progressive uh, president, was safeguarding him. His lawyers visit us sometimes, desperate. But if Biden, Biden has several messages to put out, in my opinion. I can't, could not replace him because I don't know the U.S. society in depth. And I know that he is confronting very um, dark, uh, backward-looking forces that uh, date back a long time in the society. But Biden should uh, take the leap of reforming the international financial system, the IMF, to reduce the public debts of all countries and free up budget space for a Marshall Plan for life. He can. He has that ability with Europe. Biden could, in this way, become the green leader, the environmental leader of the world. Look at all of the young people today who would like to have an opportunity to live in coming decades. And Biden could launch uh, the message of democracy lifting up the process, he could pardon him, what have you, the path to tell the world that a journalist doing their job as a journalist should not be kept prisoner, even if it has a negative interest, uh, a negative impact on the interests of U.S. power, because it's the foundational aspect of that power. Well, the principle is that the press must operate independent of power. That would be sending a message to the world. I don't know how much it would be a message to his own society, but I believe that society itself has democratic defenses that would make it possible to recognize a great democratic leader. That was Colombian President Gustavo Petro. will air the whole exclusive interview on Thursday on Democracy Now!, 
Colombian President Petro and Brazilian President Lula's remarks supporting Julian Assange come as a delegation of six Australian lawmakers have arrived in Washington to urge the Biden administration to halt its prosecution of the WikiLeaks founder, who is an Australian citizen. More than 60 members of Australia's parliament from across the political spectrum recently wrote an open letter to the Biden administration. It appeared as a full-page ad in The Washington Post. The lawmakers wrote, quote, we are at resolutely of the view that the prosecution and incarceration of the Australian citizen Julian Assange must end. The letter goes on to state, the prolonged pursuit of Mr. Assange wears away at the substantial foundation of regard and respect that Australians have for the justice system of the United States of America, unquote. Julian Assange has also received support from the highest levels of the Australian government. This is Australia's foreign minister, Penny Wong, speaking in July. We have made clear our view uh, that Mr. Assange's case has dragged on for too long and uh, our desire that it be brought to a conclusion. And we've said that publicly and you would anticipate that that reflects also the position we articulate in private. We're joined now by the Australian Senator Peter Wish-Wilson. He's a member of the Australian Greens Party, representing Tasmania. He co-founded the Bring Julian Assange Home Parliamentary Group nearly five years ago, just flew into Washington, D.C. last night. Senator, welcome to Democracy Now! If you can explain what you plan to do in Washington, D.C., and lay out what you see as Julian Assange's case. Yeah, thank, thanks, Amy. Um, We've got a number of meetings with uh, U.S. lawmakers, uh, both in the Congress and in the Senate. We'll also be meeting with the um, Department of Justice, uh, the State Department, uh, with the U uh, Australian uh, consulate and ambassador and a number of other stakeholders and, of course, doing media uh, like, like I am now. Um, the primary aim for our delegation, and it is cross-party, is to let Americans know, uh, and, and particularly uh, those in power, that Australians feel very strongly about this issue. Uh, we feel like Julian Assange has suffered enough. Uh, he's been incarcerated now in one form or another for nearly a decade uh, for simp simply publishing the truth. Uh, he is an Australian citizen. Uh, he won the highest uh, award for journalism uh, in Australia. A number of Australian media uh, outlets, as well as, of course, key US media outlets, have published uh, articles around the, around the WikiLeaks disclosures. Uh, and you know, we, we feel that his extradition process that's underway is a very dangerous global precedent uh, for press freedoms. Um, it's an extraterritorial overreach by the US government and not something you would expect from, uh, you know, the beacon of global democracy. It's, it's uh, with all respect to uh, your listeners, it's something you might expect uh, from a totalitarian regime. So uh, the Australian uh, recent polls in Australia have shown that nine out of ten Australians would like to see Julian Assange freed. Uh, they'd like to see him home for Christmas uh, to sit down with his his lovely wife, his two children, his brother and his father, like all of us, have, have a Christmas lunch with his family. Uh, and we'd like to make it very clear to US lawmakers that uh, the Australian Parliament, who we represent across political parties, uh, also feel very strongly that uh, if the extradition proceedings continue, and especially if he is extradited to the US, um, increasingly our relationship will be seen through this prism 
uh, and one of one of frustration. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Australia is uh, the closest of friends and the closest of allies with the US. Uh, and of course, close friends and allies should have mutual respect. Uh, but we don't feel that the, uh, the representations our government have made so far to the Biden administration have been, hurt, have been listened to. We've certainly seen a, uh, a disappointing response from uh, Secretary Blinken uh, when he was in Australia recently. So we felt like we had to jump on a plane and do 60 hours of travel to, to be here in Washington to meet face to face and look people in the eye and say enough is enough. Uh, Julian needs to be freed. Well, well, Senator, I wanted to ask you, when you started this campaign five years ago in the parliament, you were a lone voice. Uh, there were only two of you. Now it's uh, it's a quarter of the uh, Australian parliament. Uh, could you talk about the evolution of the, the, the leadership's view in Australia and of the public's view in Australia about uh, Julian's case? Yeah, thank you. Look, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I met with Julian's father, uh, John Shipton, yeah, nearly five years ago, and uh, um, he only got two meetings with, uh, with decision makers in the Australian Parliament, and I was one of them. Um, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, over, over the last decade, there's been a very concerted uh, character assassination on, on Mr Assange. Uh, and I think that there's, there's a very, very deliberate strategy here to make him unpopular. Uh, because ultimately an extradition proceeding, uh, especially on espionage charges, is a political charge. And we see Julian Assange as a political prisoner. But of course, if that would require a political solution uh, to have the extradition proceedings dropped. And if he was unpopular and people didn't like him, uh, then uh, no one would pay any attention uh, and the US government would be able to get away with this. So, you know, five years ago, uh, it's fair to say Julian was unpopular in Australia too. A number of people didn't want to engage on this issue. Um, but as we've campaigned to get the facts out there around this specific uh, you know, details of the extradition which relate to disclosures around the Iraq war, you know, not to disclosures around uh, the Swedish, you know, the, any, any attempt for Julian to be uh, sent to Sweden or any, uh, anything to do with, um, you know, the, the cable gate disclosures with the US election. And we've, we've wanted to just get the facts in front of people that Julian is an Australian journalist. It's a foreign journalist to uh, your American listeners. It's the first time that the US government has tried to extradite a foreign journalist for activities on foreign soil. Um, it's never happened before. And of course, if, um, if a democracy like the US can do this, they can bring a journalist and put them in, in jail for 175 years, and we don't believe he'll get a fair trial here in the US. Um, what kind of precedent does that set uh, for other nations? If a government who doesn't like what you've published and seeks your extradition and seeks to put you in jail to silence you and to make a very, let's be very clear about this, to make an example of you. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, the, the principle is a very simple one. Um, and as we've put these facts in front of people, as we've had discussions across parliamentary uh, lines, uh, as we've talked to the Australian media, uh, we've been able to actually put the details in front of people and they get it. They understand when you do that. So it has taken some time uh, to build this momentum. Uh, I think um, the documentary uh, about Julian's father, John Shipton, and his family, his brother Gabrielle, and others there. 
the very personalised, uh, you know, film about their campaign to get Julian freed has helped Jul- has helped humanise Julian, because as I said, um, he's had a very very significant hatchet job done on his, and, and you know he's been he's been very deeply defamed on a number of levels, and I don't believe there was any basis to truth on that. So it's actually been about changing changing the frame to to actually look at what what is this specific issue of extradition and what are the global consequences if he is extradited to the US. And speaking of changing the frame, next month, your uh, Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is uh, planning an official state visit to the United States and will meet with President Biden. Uh, How could Assange's extradition case potentially influence the discussions in that visit? Well, I think it's very important that our Prime Minister does raise this again uh, with uh, US lawmakers, especially with the President. Uh, he's said on, he has raised this both privately and, of course, it was raised at a press conference in Australia with your Secretary of State. Uh, and to be honest, it's one of the reasons we're here. We want to make sure as our parliamentary delegation meets with US lawmakers as we try and raise awareness of this issue uh, amongst your listeners and other people in the United States, uh, that our Prime Minister feels it is an important issue for, for them to discuss publicly. Um, as I said earlier, this is, this is becoming a big issue in Australia. Um, you know, we are the closest of friends, and while friends should be able to disagree, um, you know, we, we, we see uh, the very, especially re- in recent, uh, in the last 18 months since the Albanese government, our Prime Minister's Anthony Albanese, the Albanese government has become you know, increasingly closer to the US, uh, especially in, in defence and security ties. Uh, the Australian government's looking at appropriating. Uh, you know, half a trillion dollars to buy uh, nuclear submarines from the US, for example. You know, as we become closer to the US, we feel there should be some quid pro quo here. Um, be, given we feel so strongly about this issue of Assange's release, that that should be the minimum we get back from the Biden government. What has the Prime Minister, in, in uh, Senator, what has the Prime Minister expressed so far uh, to Biden, either publicly or privately? Is he demanding his freedom or him um, after he was extradited to the United States to be released to Australia? He, he is, Amy. He, he said very clear, clearly, uh, similar to what you had there with Senator Wong, our foreign minister, he said he sees no purpose in the continuing incarceration or extradition of Julian Assange. Uh, he feels that it, enough is enough and it should come to an end. Um, and, you know, I think that's a very clear message. Uh, it is a different message to the last government. Uh, the Conservative government we had in Australia uh, didn't say anything about Julian Assange. Um, they didn't say anything negative about his extradition, but at the same time, they never made any public statements. So we have seen a sea change or a seismic shift in our, in our leadership commenting on this issue, which, which we welcome. Um, but we would like to see this backed up by action. Uh, you know, words are, words are cheap. Um, we would like to actually see uh, the Prime Minister set, you know, lay out to the US President and, uh, and other power structures here within the US that there will be consequences uh, if Julian Assange is extradited. We feel that's very important. To be very clear as friends... We have 10 uh, seconds. ...have a very frank discussion. Peter Wish Wilson, want to thank you for being with us, has been an Australian Green senator from Tasmania in the Australian federal parliament since 2012. He co-founded the Bring Julian Assange Home Parliamentary Group nearly five years ago.
Next up, we speak with Indigenous leader Winona LaDuke. A Minnesota judge has thrown out criminal charges against her and two other water defenders arrested for protesting at the construction site of Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline. Back in 30 seconds. That was water protectors in 2021 singing down to the river to pray in Great River, Minnesota. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Here in New York City, protests continued Tuesday during Climate Week, and one action indigenous activists with Honor the Earth painted a giant mural in Times Square with the message, No Green Colonialism, Land Back Now. Indigenous activists were also at the front of Sunday's march of some 75,000 people to the United Nations calling on President Biden to end fossil fuels. This comes as a Minnesota judge has dismissed criminal charges against three indigenous water protectors who were arrested while um, after protesting at the construction site of Enbridge's Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline in January of 2021. The three women, Winona LaDuke, Tanya Obed and Don Goodwin, were arrested after police saw video shared on social media of them at a rally for river ceremony on the banks of the Mississippi River on treaty-ceded Anishinaabe land as they sang, danced, and prayed near construction crews. Well, in a landmark opinion delivered last Thursday, the Aiken County senior judge Leslie Metzen wrote, as respected members of Anishinaabe tribes, Leduc, Abed and Goodwin were expressing, quote, their heartfelt belief that the waters of Minnesota need to be protected from damage that could result from the pipeline. Judge Metzen concluded, quote, in the interests of justice, the charges against these three individuals who are exercising their rights to free speech and to freely express their spiritual beliefs should be dismissed. To criminalize their behavior would be the crime, the judge said. For more, we're joined by Winona LaDuke, longtime indigenous activist, author, uh, and Anasha, uh, Anasha Ojibwe enrolled member of the Mississippi Band of uh, Ash, um, Beg, who lives and works on the White Earth Indian Reservation, founded the White Earth Land Recovery Project, her first novel, Last Standing Woman, republished this year in a 25th anniversary edition. She's joining us from the White Earth Reservation, Minnesota. Uh, Winona, welcome back to Democracy Now. I'm sorry I said those um, uh, the names so badly. If you can say them, if you could say them for us. Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe, Anin, Indinoi, Magnetic, Kaloma relatives, Buju, 
It's Anishinaabe. Thanks for calling on me, and I'm glad to not be in jail. So can you talk about the judge's decision, exactly what this means? Well, you know, first of all, it was so significant. I cried when I read her decision because she refers specifically to not only our, our, you know, right, religious freedom, but also our treaties, because we're all members of the Mississippi Band and Anishinaabe, and our territory that we love and come from is right there. And in her decision, she says, treaties between the United States and Anishinaabe have been signed regarding these lands. This court finds that it is within the furtherance of justice to protect the defendants peacefully protesting to protect the land and water on the land addressed in these treaties by dismissing this action against all defendants. So it was about you know our religious freedom, our freedom of assembly, our constitutional rights, but also recognizing our treaty rights, which is what we have been saying. These are our territories and we have a right and responsibility to protect them. And I'm so grateful to the judge, but you know, she was clear in her decision also saying that, you know, you know, she just she just said in the interest of justice, the phrase often and rarely applied to defendants, the less powerful and voiceless. For 40 years, she served on these courts. These cases particularly awakened in her. You know, she talked about the fact that growing up in Minnesota, you had a, a cowboys and Indians education and then you're supposed to adjudicate cases, you know. So this woman took the time and 40 years of experience in seeing Indian people come to the up to the bar time and time and time and time again charged for being Indian, basically, for being Anishinaabe. She said something really profound and she did the right thing. She brought justice, you know, and we appreciate her. And Winona, could you uh, comment on how uh, the difference between how prosecutors in uh, in Minnesota treated you and the other uh, free speech protesters versus how uh, the uh, Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison, who prides himself supposedly as being a progressive, uh, who was much more lenient with Enbridge, uh, brought a single misdemeanor charge against them for uh, breaching an aquifier, which was dismissed. Right. And Enbridge breached four aquifers is what we know. The crimes committed by this corporation are egregious and ongoing. They have never been charged. The one case in Clearwater County, the first aquifer breach of four. In other words, we don't know, you know, there's no more water that they're making. And Enbridge is destroying and contaminating our water on an ongoing basis. There have been no charges brought for the other three aquifer breaches. And Enbridge negotiated kind of a hush settlement, like we'll deal with it and then we'll, you know, we'll postpone it. Tens of thousands of people wrote to Attorney General Keith Ellison and asked him to drop the charges against people like me. I'm not a criminal, I'm a water protector. I'm an Anishinaabe woman who prayed by the river, danced, did my darndest to stop the pipeline, tried everything, and then had charges in three counties. Tens of thousands of people said drop the charges, and, and there are still people with felony charges that that need to have their charges dropped, and Enbridge needs to be charged because they are the criminals. Let's talk about this. Nearly a 1,000 people have been arrested at protests to stop Line 3 pipeline, while many charges were dismissed or settled. About 20 are still pending. Um, a few weeks ago, we spoke with climate activist, water protector Malene Viard, whose trial for peacefully protesting Enbridge Line 3 was about to start uh, in Minnesota. She was about to testify that day. She was found guilty of felony obstruction 
construction for her role in trying to halt construction and faces a year and a day in prison for her 2021 protests when she attached herself to a 25-foot bamboo tower erected to block a pumping station in Aiken County. Viard, who lives in Colorado, had come to Minnesota to take part in this wave of indigenous-led acts of civil disobedience to stop the pipeline. When we spoke, I asked her about her concerns as she faced conviction and sentencing. I wouldn't say that I'm afraid. Um, I entered this um, fully um, aware of the risk I was taking and not really um, believing that the justice system in this court would be served, um, would be um, hearing me fully. Um, so I I am aware of what I'm risking uh, and I'm going um, I'm going there fully aware of the risk, um, but I'm not scared. I know where I stand. I know what my purpose is here. I'm um, grateful for you to, for hearing us uh, today. So that's water protector Milen Viard. Winona, uh, right after we spoke, she went into court and she testified. So she was found guilty and she faces a year in prison. Can you talk about her and the other people who are still waiting? And are they all before the same judge that um, acquitted you? Drop no, they are the not. They are, they, are, they are in front of a, a number of judges up north. And um, some may also be facing jury trials. We're facing a jury trial. And, you know, this is the deep north. I was hoping that people would go with our side with a jury trial. But, you know, you don't know up here. It's pretty racist. Uh, so having said that, you know, these people should not be charged. Enbridge is charging people with stealing time because they, they slowed down Enbridge. And so they had this time theft charge. I mean, the, the charges are ratcheted up. They were incentivized by Enbridge paying for the charge that the all of the police, $8.6 million. And some of the, the prosecutors were disappointed that Enbridge wouldn't pay for the prosecution, including Hubbard County, where, you know, we work and, and we're putting up our museum on treaty rights and, and culture. But, you know, having said that, it's just it's a shame what is going on in the north. It's a shame to Minnesota. And and it's you know, what it shows is is, you know, the, the planet is facing climate chaos. And here they are justifying and defending a Canadian pipeline company that imports 75 percent of the tar sands into the U.S. and is trying to put a pipeline across the Straits of Mackinac. Redo one. You know, late stage addiction behavior is bad and we need to sober up and we need to protect the water and the human rights of people and the animals and not and not the Canadian Pipeline Corporation. So my you know, I, I plan to speak up and help support other folks. And we are hoping that what the judge ruled here will help the others, because, you know, we tried everything to stop this company. And uh, none of us want to be arrested. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a criminal in Enbridge's. And we don't know, we only have about 20 seconds, but the protesters at the U.N. General Assembly uh, went to Times Square with a big mural, no green colonialism land back now. What are you hoping to see from the Biden administration? Well, we want the Tamarack mine stopped as well as the mine out in Nevada, Thacker Pass. But they're looking at trading our sacred Sandy Lake where our people died by the hundreds, by the hundreds, our sacred lake for a, for a, you know, a Tesla mine. And we need to quit. 
What we need to do is reduce our consumption, get efficient, and not try, try to pretend that you know some new green colonialism is going to change things. Uh, there are many choices, like infrastructure for people, not for pipeline companies, and not for Elon Musk. And that's what we want. We want to protect the water. Thank you so much for taking a look at us in Minnesota, fifth of the world's water. It's worth protecting, and, and certainly we are not criminals. Winona LaDuke, longtime indigenous activist and author who lives and works on the White Earth Indian Reservation, founded the White Earth Land Recovery Project, her first novel, Last Standing Woman, republished in a 25th anniversary edition. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. <laughs> 